You're listening to For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd, and this is For the Record. Everybody, and welcome to the last episode of For the Record with Tess Heard. I'm Tess Heard, and this is For the Record. If you follow me on social media, then you know that the podcast isn't actually going anywhere. We're just doing a little bit of rebranding. So, starting January of 2024, we are going to be known as Blind Crime. If you know me in person, then you know that I struggle with vision issues. And I made a joke a couple of weeks ago about how I needed to rename the podcast Blind Crime because sometimes I can't see. And I just kind of ran with it. And then I was like, oh my gosh, that's actually a really great idea. So we're going to be doing a little bit of rebranding. If you've seen social media, then you've seen the new logo and everything, and the name has already been updated. Whenever this posts, it's going to show up as Blind Crime posted a new episode, but it is, this episode is for the record. It'll just be the last time it's for the record. But I just wanted to fill you guys in on that. And thank you guys so much for listening and for letting me have a place where I can talk about these cases, where I can express myself, where I can be heard, and just feel like even though I've started literally from scratch, never doing anything like this before, I've gotten so much good positive feedback and so much good constructive criticism. It has been such a learning experience and I know that whenever we come back at the first of the year it is going to be even better. So I cannot wait until then. All right so this is another continuation of the Take Care of Maya trial. I know that I was going to do an episode the week of Thanksgiving and then I pushed it to the 1st of December and life has happened. I was visually impaired for about three weeks and could not see my hand in front of my face. So I didn't get around to doing any of that. So here it is, the final update that we are going to do on this case as of right now. So where we left off, they had gotten the verdict and they had gotten somewhere around, you know, $111 million. But then they had to go through the punitive damages. I did not realize at the time that that was going to happen the same day. And it actually happened 
almost immediately after the initial verdict was read. I think they took like a lunch break or something and then they went through the punitive damages. So the punitive damages were like a punishment for the hospital's actions. And I didn't know that. I didn't know what punitive damages were. So that was something new for me. But whenever they went back to deliberate, I think they were back there for almost two hours. And they came back and found that the hospital was liable for these punitive damages. And they came with a pretty hefty price tag. And it was somewhere in the range of another $50 million. Of course, the hospital is going to appeal. They are going to try to get out of it. They are going to do whatever they can to make sure that they do not have to pay this. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that they're going to have to pay something. They may come back later on with some kind of settlement but I don't know. It really, really, really made me mad though because Mr. Shapiro, whenever he was defending or, or doing his arguments for the punitive damages, he said that whatever the jury awards to the Kowalski family takes away from the sick kids who would be coming to the hospital. Kids with cancer, kids who needed surgery, blah, 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 blah. He even said that, you know, they were trying to find the cure for cancer. And if they took away money from the hospital, then they wouldn't be able to find the cure for cancer. And it's like, dude, quit manipulating. Like, quit manipulating. Oh my goodness. That is so low. That is so greasy and just petty and ugh. Just stop. Now on the flip side of that, whenever Mr. Whitney was talking about his argument for the punitive damages, he brought up the movie, oh, Onward, I think it's called. I haven't seen it, so I don't remember. But he was talking about the plot of this movie and how these two boys lost their dad and they went through all of these things and on this big adventure to try to get their dad back. And they were able to get their dad back. And he, like, had the entire jury and gallery and pretty much the whole courtroom in tears because he was like, you know, no amount of money can bring Beata Kowalski back, but this family would pay whatever amount of money they could to have just an hour with her again. And it's like, I was just sitting there sobbing. I was like, oh my gosh, Mr. Whitney, stop it. So the fact that you heard him say that and then heard Mr. Shapiro like, don't take away money from the kids who need treatment. Like, okay, I know that the hospital isn't all bad. I get that. I know that the hospital did a lot of good. They do a lot of good. But they also have done a lot of wrong. 
and just like with anyone in any case in any situation if you do something wrong there has to be some sort of consequence for that you can't just do whatever you want to and not have to pay consequences for it if you put your hand on hot stove you're gonna get burned if you go outside in the middle of winter without a jacket on you're gonna get cold like you there's a consequence for every action every action has an equal and opposite reaction so you have to take that into consideration and you can't manipulate people into saying oh well i'm gonna not you know give this family who you wronged any money because then other families with sick kids aren't gonna be able to get treatment from your hospital i wouldn't send my kid to that hospital if it was the last hospital on the planet okay and i'm not saying that the other sick kids don't need to be treated that they don't need to or they don't deserve to have you know life-saving care but these lawyers should not have used that as their argument like come on there were so many other ways that they could have done it they could have said something like you know yes i know we messed up i know that we messed up we did not do this right we did a lot of things wrong punish us for this but know that we acknowledge what we've done wrong and they wouldn't even admit it and even mr anderson was standing up there at the end saying they don't freaking get it they still don't freaking get it and it was just like oh my gosh this this is it's insane it's just insane it's so crazy that they still do not freaking get it but we're gonna move on because there has been some post-court drama. Juror number one was one that both sides were kind of concerned about because of the way that he was asking questions. He was one of the ones, if not the main one, who was asking all of these questions that was basically like a second cross-examination. He was amazing but Mr. Kowalski wanted to keep him on and so the judge agreed to let juror number one stay on after the trial was finished after the judge had given them the order that they could that the jury could watch anything they wanted to watch they could read anything they wanted to read they could go back and watch the trial if they wanted to they juror number one did that and he found a lot of people on youtube that his wife had been watching and his wife had been watching and interacting with these people online specifically law and lumber recovery addict um megan fox not the actress megan fox but the law tube megan fox and i think melanie little lawyer you know there were just several other people several youtubers who are on law tube that 
she had watched and interacted with. Now, let me just say, never once in any of her interactions did she say that she was juror number one's wife, that she was in any type of relation with juror number one, that she even knew juror number one. She made no indication of that whatsoever. But the court, or the defense, I mean, wants to interview juror number one and his wife because they think that he did not come to his conclusions on his own. They think that because his wife was watching these lawyers and everything cover the trial, that she was telling him, that his wife was telling him what to do, what to say, or that he was also watching with her. They do not think that he upheld the order of do not watch any media, do not, you know, read anything or whatever. Like, they think that he had jury misconduct. And they also think that because of the wife's questions and comments that she was being told things about the court, about the trial, that she couldn't have possibly have known just from watching on her own, which is total bullcrap because I knew the same things that she was talking about on these law tube channels that she had been watching. So it's really just a bunch of bull. And I think that the defense is just reaching for straws, grasping, grasping at straws. I'm really bad at these little phrases. Oh my goodness. So that's just like one thing. Okay. They want to not only interview this juror and the juror's wife, but they want to confiscate their cell phones and their computers and everything to get all of their texts and emails and social media and all that kind of stuff. Not that they need that because they have all the screenshots anyways, right? And that's in their motion for this. It's complete bull. But they want to confiscate all of that and go through it to make sure that nothing was going on, that there wasn't any nef anything nefarious going on. Here's the real kicker. And even as someone who is not involved in the law whatsoever, but whenever I realized this, because I watched Recovery Addicts go through this motion, and I was like, what the actual heck? They have this motion on the court the I don't know what kind of website it is the docket whatever it is but it's available to the public okay it had the juror's name the juror's wife's name their address their phone number all of their personal information essentially doxing them and it was not redacted. Everything was out in the open, just 
for anyone and everyone who happened to download that file of the motion. It got taken down several days later and redacted and then uploaded again. But it was still up there for God knows how long with that information up there. So this family has now been totally exposed. They had some sort of anonymity still and it just got totally ripped from them by the defense. Now I'm telling you, if I was juror number one and his wife, I would be like, uh, hey, Mr. Anderson, represent me against this dude because he totally aired, like put out all of my personal information and that's not right. Like, they are not supposed to be able to do that. They didn't even let the jury, they didn't even let the jury walk in front of the cameras after they had been dismissed, after they had been let go, after the trial was over, because they were still trying to protect their identities and everything. And they... They're not supposed to just, like, go out and expose who they are. It's not like they nail up a list to the front of the courthouse and it's like, oh, yeah, juror number one is John Doe. Juror number 83 is Janet Weaver. You know, they they don't do that. If the jurors want to come out and reveal themselves, then they can do that. They have the freedom to do that. They have the choice to do that. But to have the defense just throw out their names and their personal information, that is, I, I don't know, I think that is totally wrong. And I think that legal action should be able to be taken against the defense for doing that. But... I don't know. I It just, it irritated me. The prosecutors have filed a motion in response to the defense's motion. Basically just calling it out and calling it complete bullcrap, which it is. And they've addressed a lot of this stuff about how, you know, they did believe that juror number one was you know, obeying the order not to watch any outside media, not to talk to anyone about the case, not to discuss it with anybody or anything like that. And the way that this motion was written by the defense, it made it seem like juror number one's wife was not able to come to her own conclusion, not able to think for herself and have her own thoughts about the case. And the only reason that she was thinking that way was because of what her husband was telling her. And they also said in, they, they said like 87 times throughout the whole motion that they, that juror number one and his wife were married and residing in the same house over the nine-week trial. God forbid that a husband and wife live together whenever one of them is on jury duty. God forbid. And if you're going to throw a hissy fit about that, then do like what all of the other lawyers have said and sequester the juror 
put them in a hotel for however long the trial is going to be so that they can't discuss it with their spouse. Like, that's one way to do that. And then they also brought up the fact that if they were so concerned about juror number one, why did they let him go through the process of, I forget what it's called, but the process of becoming a juror on the jury? The defense are the ones that pushed him through. They knew that he had a background as a police officer. They knew that he had all of the elements that they then became so worried and so concerned about. Like, come on. You're literally throwing a hissy fit over what you asked for. Like, ugh! this defense i swear they just they just are they're too much they're too much for my brain to even comprehend but the back to the motion from prosecution it was so good it was the perfect tone of of snark and seriousness. Mr. Anderson is the one who wrote it. It was great. I loved it. I honestly don't remember as much of it as I do the defense because the defense made me so angry. But yeah, I do remember being like, oh, Mr. Anderson, you so good. You so good. So it's it's all just a bunch of chaos even still and I think it's gonna stay this way I think that there's going to be so much that still comes out from both the defense and the prosecution I think it's gonna be just one thing after another after another after another and I really don't know I really don't know if the Kowalskis are ever going to see any of that money just because of how ridiculous the defense is being. And I understand that in any case like this, no matter what, you are going to try to fight it and you're going to try to prevent from having to pay out that money. Like, that's, that's inevitable. But at the same time, I don't know, I think that they need to put their big girl panties on. They need to suck it up. They either need to come to the Kowalskis with a legitimate offer to settle and go from there. Or they need to just simply accept the fact that they did something wrong. That they were not in the right for this whole ordeal and just pay what the Kowalskis are owed and I think that that would obviously I think that would be the best thing but I don't know I don't I don't I don't think that they're they're gonna settle and I think that they're gonna fight tooth and nail to not have to pay anything but that's just me Alright guys, that is all that I have for this final 
episode of not only the Kowalski case, but this final episode of For the Record with Tess Hurd. Like I said in the beginning, you guys have made this possible. Y'all are so awesome, and I appreciate every single one of you who tunes in and who listens. I know that I can be kind of erratic sometimes, but y'all have stayed with me, and I truly, truly, truly appreciate you, and I just want to say thank you so much for your support during all of this craziness. All right. We're going to be back in... 2024 episodes are still going to come out on Fridays that's about the only thing that's saying the same and me I'm still going to be here so until well not until next time because there isn't going to be a next time for this one alright I guess court is dismissed you guys have a great wonderful Merry Christmas and a very happy new year and I will see you next time